Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Up. My name's Kevin. I'm your host. Uh, I hope that those of you listening in countries that celebrate Thanksgiving had a really great holiday weekend. Uh, I know I did. Uh, I am just got home this week, uh, Took did a little bit of traveling last weekend. Uh, family and I went to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, uh, did a little bit of hiking, and it was a, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I highly recommend it for anyone who likes to be in the outdoors. And uh, there's uh, some great bits of history along the way that you can check out too. So I want to give a shout out to a new Patreon subscriber. Uh, Her name is A. Um, A, thank you so much for uh, listening to the show and supporting it on Patreon. Uh, If you would like to... Uh, support the podcast on Patreon. You can head over to patreon.com slash CMTU history, and you can get access to episodes early before anyone else, before they drop. Uh, and you can get access to bonus Q and a with my guests. Uh, my guest today, Dr. Colleen Darnell, she sat down for a little extra Q and a, uh, and she talked to me about why Akhenaten seems to be a magnet for fringe thinkers, uh, and historians. Um, so that was a, a nice little bit of extra and thank you to, for, to Colleen for taking the time to, to talk to me, uh, for our Patreon supporters. Uh, and then if you are listening to the podcast, uh, for a while or brand new, um, feel free to like and subscribe to it. Tell a friend. Uh, That's a great way to help get the word out about the podcast. And of course, if you want to follow me on social media, uh, I'm on Instagram, TikTok, uh, at CMTU History. uh, And I'm also on what's left of Twitter, at CMTU History as well. Uh, I have created a Mastodon since people seem to be moving over there. Uh, I created one just to have one. I'm still kind of figuring it out. It works a little bit different than some of the other social media sites, but uh, I'm over there as well if you'd like to connect. So with today's episode, we are breaking new ground with the podcast. We are going way back into ancient history, and we are going to look at Egyptology. My guest today is Dr. Colleen Darnell. Uh, She is co-author of the book Egypt's Golden Couple, When Akhenaten and Nefertiti Were Gods on Earth. Uh, She wrote this along with her husband, Dr. John Darnell, uh, who unfortunately couldn't join us today due to his teaching uh, schedule. Uh, But they are from Yale and the University of Hartford, Connecticut. Um, And we, Colleen and I, had a wonderful conversation uh, looking at the reign of one of Egypt's most uh, interesting and um, and uh, perhaps strangest pharaohs, uh, Akhenaten, uh, makes a lot of changes during his reign uh, and has been the subject of endless scholarly research. And as Colleen and I uh, discuss, uh, some of that research has led to some uh, really interesting narratives developing around Akhenaten and Nefertiti's reign. Uh, So uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation uh, and you'll enjoy learning a little bit about ancient Egypt today. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools 
Colleen Darnell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you uh, have the honor of being the first Egyptologist we've had on the program. How exciting. Yeah. Well, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the field of Egyptology, uh, both you and your husband? Of course. So for both of us, we have been interested in ancient Egypt and especially hieroglyphs and hieratic, so the, the cursive writing of ancient Egypt. Uh, since we were children, uh, John's mother was very interested in archaeology and I, as a child, pretty much read everything I could get my hands on when it came to ancient Egypt. And it's so funny when we tell people that we are Egyptologists, uh, very often how uh, our work has has evolved. And John's work in the Eastern and Western deserts really rewriting aspects of ancient Egyptian history through the discovery of caravan routes and inscriptions that the ancient Egyptians left along those roads. And some of my work is focused on Egyptian literature, including the description for the first time of a genre of historical fiction written by the ancient Egyptians themselves. That's super interesting. And, and both of you are kind of making these discoveries together. Yes, we are very fortunate to be able to work together in Egypt. And although we, we have our own publications, the most exciting recent collaboration is our book, Egypt's Golden Couple. And that was particularly exciting because it was one of the first times we've brought so many of the theories that we have been working on and new translations we've been working on of the reign of Akhenaten and Nefertiti to the widest possible audience. And we think it is really important as academics to have that outreach to really make the most cutting edge research accessible to as wide a range of people as possible. Well, like you mentioned, the book that we're going to be talking about today is Egypt's Golden Couple, When Akhenaten and Nefertiti Were Gods on Earth. Um, the first thing I want to ask you is, um, what kind of challenges are there in researching something this ancient? Uh, because it's not like you can just go to a university archive, say, and, and pull out the Akhenaten papers. <laughs> yes, that is an excellent point. And we talk about that in the preface, that it is so challenging to reconstruct the lives of people who lived 3,300 years ago. And for Akhenaten and Nefertiti, it's a special challenge because the ancient Egyptians attempted to write them out of their own history. So their memories were destroyed by their son, Tutankhamun, and by subsequent pharaohs who erased Akhenaten's legacy. So through archeology, span through actually the discovery of temples of Akhenaten and Nefertiti that had been dismantled and used as fill, those have emerged from temples in Egypt. So the biggest challenge was simply trying to put all of these disparate pieces of the puzzle together to try to tell a more continuous narrative. Uh, and we did so by combining literary reconstructions of what life was like in ancient Egypt using real artifacts, real places, many times real dialogue, and then also taking the reader through 
the research itself. So not we we tried to solve that problem of not just saying, well, we know this, this, and this about Akhenaten and Nefertiti, but this is how we know what we know. This is where we can be certain. And here are some things that we think are likely that they did and believed, but for which there are uncertainties and debate. And that's what we attempted to do to, to bridge that gap because we don't have, as you said, the Akhenaten papers in a university archive. Okay, well, well let's get started uh, talking about these figures. Um, what what kind of environment did, did Akhenaten come of age in? Um, what do we know about his father's reign? We know a tremendous amount about the reign of his father, Amenhotep III, which lasted for 37 years and is really one of the absolute golden ages of ancient Egyptian history. It is the height of Egyptian peace and stability in terms of both Egypt itself and its territories to the northeast and to the south. It is a time of artistic flowering. There are thousands of statues produced during Amenhotep III's reign. It is also a time where smaller objects become increasingly exquisite, whether they're of faience or ceramic or wood. And we see also an increasing emphasis on the relationship of the king to the sun god which will then become crucial in the reign of his son. Uh, so if anybody is familiar with Akhenaten, the, what, what you just mentioned about the sun god is, is kind of synonymous with him. So, so when his father, Amenhotep III, dies, what changes does he start to implement? From the beginning of the reign of Akhenaten, when he is still King Amenhotep, so the fourth king of that name, he focuses increasingly on the worship of the sun god and he gives the sun god a new name and yet almost all of the aspects of that name have recently been found in by egyptian excavators in luxor during the reign of amenhotep iii so even in the new name that akhenaten gives to the sun god which is Aten, uh, the sun disk, and he, it also has a longer name of the sun disk who rejoices in the horizon. So this focus on the journey of the sun through the sky. But even in that, what Akhenaten does in the first few years of his reign appears to be a continuation of the developments in solar worship that we see during the reign of his father. And that was something we really wanted to emphasize because as you said, when, when most people think about Akhenaten, they think about a monotheistic focus on the sun god. And yet it wouldn't have seemed as weird to an ancient Egyptian in the first few years of Akhenaten's reign, precisely because of what had happened the previous two decades. You mentioned in your book that there's kind of this existing scholarship surrounding Akhenaten and what we have thought about his reign. Uh, can you comment a little bit on what the, the existing competing narratives are surrounding Akhenaten's reign? Absolutely. And this was one of the aspects that we really wanted to tackle is that if you read books about Akhenaten, you literally would not think you were reading about the same person. That in some scholarship, uh, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, 
Akhenaten was presented as a proto-messiah, as a forerunner almost of Jesus, as someone who might have known and influenced Moses, something that Sigmund Freud uh, went all in on in, in some of his works. And then as the 20th century progressed, Akhenaten became a tyrant who ruined Egypt, who was also a person who committed incest with his own daughters. And so the evidence in terms of primary sources hadn't changed hugely. Some new texts had certainly been discovered, and we talk about a few of those where we, we have differences in our translations of did Akhenaten have a revelation or was this new solar worship a question of, of research and incremental change? But at the same time, looking at some fairly similar sources, there were essentially two Akhenatens that had been bequeathed to the world through scholarship. And, and even more so than that, that that's kind of the polarity uh, if we go to the two extremes. So, so where do you and John fall in this spectrum of interpretations? What we try to do is show that there were certainly aspects of Akhenaten's solar religion that created an extreme, particularly the iconoclasm against other Egyptian gods, primarily the god Amun-Ra, the king of the gods and the chief god of the imperial new kingdom. So in that, yes, he was very much hated by the ancient Egyptians. But we try to show that getting to the point of iconoclasm and getting to the point where his beliefs would have been increasingly rejected by priests and other members of Egyptian society, that, that really is an incremental change and not something that we see out of the gate, for example. That Akhenaten may have sired with his own daughters are in recut blocks where Akhenaten's second wife, Kia, and her daughter, Bakit Aten, were removed from reliefs. And as Kia was replaced with one of Akhenaten's daughters, they still needed to rename Kia's daughter. So they basically had a little placeholder that was, so for example, at one point, Kia is replaced by the eldest daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, Mary Dodden. So what do you do with the little figure behind Kia replaced with Mary Dodden? You name her Mary Dodden the Little. And so the assumption that, well, that's actually a daughter sired by Akhenaten vanishes when we see that the only time these granddaughters are in the sources is these small series of recut blocks. So that maybe he really loved his family uh, in, in a pleasant way, because we do see him playing with the daughters and, and having this loving relationship with Nefertiti. They even kiss in the chariot. But what we show is that every step of the way, the presentation that Akhenaten and Nefertiti make of themselves has a theological and an ideological purpose. So we shouldn't read his art too literally. 
and that if you look at the theological purpose of his art and his representations in the context of the much longer trends in Egyptian religion, that we really can say something about how he took all these traditional aspects of Egyptian kingship, but then went to an extreme. And it was when he went to the extreme that his reign was rejected. Hey gang, I wanted to take a little break from our conversation today to tell you about the new partner of the podcast, Libro.fm. If you're like me and you have a long commute, or if you spend a lot of time with your AirPods in and you're listening to something, uh, you might enjoy audiobooks, just like I do. Uh, Well, Libro.fm is an audiobook subscription service uh, in which you can get a, a credit for a new audiobook every month. Uh, but also you can purchase additional audiobooks at a pretty decent discount. Uh, and the kicker for Libro.fm relative to other audiobook services is that a portion of every sale goes to support an independent bookseller of your choice. Uh, so it's a great way that you can listen to audiobooks while also supporting uh, independent bookshops. So if you'd like to check out Libro.fm, there is a link for it down in the description of this episode in your podcast app. Uh, And if you want to join up with that link, you can get an additional audiobook credit uh, in your first month. So check out Libro.fm. Now back to our conversation. Uh, So let's switch gears and, and talk about Nefertiti. Uh, mm-hmm. What do we know about her, and and what do we know about their their relationship together? It's really interesting that we know remarkably little about Nefertiti. In fact, we don't even know who her parents were, or if Nefertiti was her name at birth. It may have been a name that she adopted, just as Akhenaten changed his name from Amenhotep. But using both historical sources, fragmentary and now damaged hieroglyphic inscriptions in the royal tomb at Amarna, ancient Akhenaten, as well as really interesting DNA evidence that has been spearheaded by a team led by Dr. Zahi Hawass in Egypt, that this all suggests that Akhenaten and Nefertiti were first cousins on both sides, and that Nefertiti belongs to the same family as Akhenaten's mother, Queen Tia. And I also would love to point out for listeners that we have both a family tree and a cast of characters. <laughs> so <laughs> because there are a lot of names throughout the book, we we try to have a place where you can always flip to and remind yourself how these people are related to one another. It, it, so, it is kind of a jigsaw puzzle to keep it straight. <laughs> it absolutely is. And it, it's even more confusing because some people then will say, well, Tutankhamun's mother is Kia rather than Nefertiti. So it, it really is this um, a jigsaw puzzle, exactly as you said, where the pieces are going to be fit together in, in different ways, depending on who you're reading. So we try to cut through some of some of the noise and, and some of the some of the debates. And what we do with our presentation of Nefertiti, because we don't have a single speech that she made, we have, we have no first person Uh, accounts of her the way we have some of Akhenaten's speeches. But because Akhenaten and Nefertiti always show themselves together, she's she's at his side. And at Karnak uh, Temple, 
built during the first in a temple to Aten at the Karnak Temple Complex, built during the first few years of Akhenaten's reign. Nefertiti appears alone worshiping Aten. This is the only time a queen appears directly offering to a god without her husband, the king present, with the exception of Queen Hatshepsut, who later became King Hatshepsut. So through the art and through the fact that Akhenaten and Nefertiti present themselves as a couple, as a unit, we argue that what they accomplish becoming gods on earth is only possible because they do it together. So we hope that readers can see that much of Nefertiti's story can be recovered by understanding how much of what she did is tied in with Akhenaten and also how much Akhenaten depended on Nefertiti to make the theological changes that he was making in the worship of Aten and in the construction of his new capital city. So she really was a partner in this Absolutely. And that comes across very strongly in the ancient sources. Now, we, we would be remiss without mentioning her contribution to our understanding of art and art history through her famous bust. Yes. And that is what is fascinating about Nefertiti in popular consciousness is that she is often said to be the most beautiful woman in the world, and maybe she was. And the bust certainly is one of the masterpieces of ancient Egyptian art. We describe in the book how it was found in a sculptor's workshop. It's missing one of its eyes because it was never finished. It was never a finished work of art put on display in ancient Egypt. Instead, it was found in a storeroom where it had fallen off a shelf over 3,000 years ago. And the proportions of her face are idealized. So it probably resembles Nefertiti's actual features, but essentially run through, we could almost compare it to a, a filter, for example, a photo filter in, in the modern day where the proportions are going to be smoothed out, everything is perfect, and it falls along what we call um, finger length because all Egyptian art was done with, I shouldn't say all, most Egyptian art was done with a grid, both two-dimensional and three-dimensional. So they likely are Nefertiti's features, but perfected to fall along the grid that represented the ideal proportions according to ancient Egyptian artistic representation. You've kind of touched on this a, a, a little bit, but you know, as they, you know, start identifying themselves more with the, the sun god and, and making these reforms, how were these changes received by people at the time? And then, you know, what was that legacy generations down the line? During their reign, during the beginning of their reign, there doesn't seem to be any pushback that is preserved. And at the new capital city of Aten, it really is populated by loyalists. And they go out of their way in their hieroglyphic inscriptions in tombs to talk about how Akhenaten is like their god. 
So just as Aten is to Akhnaten, so is Akhnaten to his officials, which is a bit further than other ancient Egyptian kings went. And we know very little then about how this impacted most of the population of Egypt, although even the royal workmen at Amarna had representations of other gods included in their homes. So while high officials and priests at Akhenaten were expected to go all in with Akhenaten's new religion, and in fact, part of why we describe Akhenaten and Nefertiti as gods on earth is that some of the most famous representations of the royal family were altars, were objects of worship within the homes of the nobility of Akhenaten. The most poignant piece of evidence that we have for the reception of Akhenaten's religious changes is a ink text included in a tomb in Thebes where a man describes how he is seeing darkness and he is essentially bereft because Amun is no longer present. And it really is this lament for the old religion. But that's really what we have um, in terms of Egyptian reactions because that isn't the sort of thing they would normally talk about. However, after Akhenaten's death, uh, his immediate successor, whose identity is still debated, seems to already be going back to Amun worship, the traditional Egyptian pantheon that is in full swing by the reign of Tutankhamun. And Akhenaten's monuments are then dismantled and his name is hacked out. And whenever they need to refer to him, they call him the rebel or the enemy of Akhenaten. They won't even say his name because in ancient Egypt to forget someone's name, uh, to have it be lost to history was to deny that person immortality in the afterlife. So that's uh, a pretty intense kind of whitewashing there. Yes, it, it reminds me because of teaching art history, for example, of iconoclastic movements during the Byzantine Empire, for, for example, uh, where you have mosaics that, that are covered with plaster, you have icons that are damaged. And there are a couple of other instances in ancient Egypt as well, where these iconoclastic movements happen against other kings. Uh, for example, Hatshepsut being a woman who was king, although her monuments were not hacked out immediately after her death, her nephew, Thutmose Third, with whom she was co-pharaoh, did at the end of his reign damage her statues and hack out her names. Although some of that was probably for a different reason than for what Akhenaten did. So it's not entirely unparalleled in ancient Egypt, but yes, it, it truly is intense in terms of historical events. Um, I One thing that is somewhat interesting is that his the name of his son, um, Tutankhamun, but it's is it reading too much into it that he changes his name and he doesn't go by Tutankhamun? Yes, that that is a huge aspect, in fact, of understanding the legacy of Akhenaten, that his own son 
named, as you said, Tutankhaten, changes his name to Tutankhamen. It, it is the reverse of what his father does. His father is born Amenhotep and changes his name to Akhenaten. Tutankhaten is born with a name that includes that new form of the sun god, and he changes his name back to then reference the god Amun. So there's some really nice symmetry there, actually. That is really interesting because you can read into that political interpretations as well as personal interpretations. Yes. And in the preface, we even have a little nod to the debate between Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung about what Akhenaten did to his own father, Amenhotep. Because when Akhenaten commands that the name Amun be hacked out, he even hacks it out in the name of his own father. But he doesn't hack out the name of his father where it doesn't have Amun. So for example, Amenhotep III's coronation name is Neb Mat Ra, the Lord of Cosmic Justice is Ray, is the sun god. That name stays, but Amunhotep, the Amun gets hacked out. And so Freud wanted to see of this, the father issues and really wanted to psychoanalyze Akhenaten. And Jung pointed out, no, it's actually the God's name, not the father's name. And this is recorded in Jung's writings that Freud was so attached to Jung as this son figure that Freud fainted when Jung confronted him <laughs> about his interpretation of Akhenaten. Uh, I, I found that part particularly interesting. The the idea that these uh, uh, 20th century psychologists are trying to psychoanalyze uh, these pharaohs from millennia earlier. It really does show how so much of what has written, been written about Akhenaten and Nefertiti in the 20th century has been an attempt to use them to say something about the modern world. And we really wanted to take the opposite tact. We, we wanted to see what we could say about Akhenaten and Nefertiti as fascinating historical figures in their own right. Well, Colleen, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you about this, and I've, I've learned a lot uh, about Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Uh, if uh, listeners would like to learn a little bit more uh, about uh, Egypt's golden couple and pick up a copy of the book, uh, where can they go? So it is available at all major booksellers, certainly Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It is available as a hardcover, an ebook, as well as an audio book. Um, our audible narrator is, is really great. And it is also available at independent booksellers. And uh, RG Julia is one in Connecticut. Uh, but really any any bookseller will will have it available. Okay, and we'll have a link for listeners to a, a website that'll connect them with their local independent bookstore if they want to grab a copy. Um, and if people want to learn more uh, about uh, your and John's research, I mean, this is the latest in in a long uh, a long line of publications. Where can people go to learn more uh, about your guys's work? So we both have uh, sites on academia.edu that have PDFs of a lot of our scholarly 
works, uh, both books and articles. So you can learn more about our discoveries of early rock art, one of which even makes it into the preface of Egypt's Golden Couple. Uh, and a lot of our work on historical fiction, ancient Egyptian religion, our public facing Egyptology work, where we really bring information about research to a broad audience is our Instagram, which is at vintage underscore Egyptologist. And you can sort of follow some of our uh, archaeological adventures there, as well as detailed captions that always tie in uh, whatever picture we're talking about to ancient Egypt. Uh, and I've had the chance to check that out. It's a very cool Instagram. Thank you so much. All right. Well, Colleen Darnell, uh, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you ha for having me. It was, it was such an honor to chat. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can't Make This Up. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to this conversation with Colleen Darnell about Egypt's Golden Couple. Uh, and big thank you to Colleen for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, if you would like to pick up a copy of Egypt's Golden Couple, uh, as always, I have a link for it down in the description of this episode in your podcast app. That will take you to a website called IndieBound.org, uh, and you can... Um, Pick up a copy of the book, uh, but it'll connect you to your local bookseller in your area where you can find a copy from, from a local store, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, all right, well, uh, I'm looking forward to a conversation I'm having tomorrow, actually. Uh, I'm going to be talking uh, to uh, Alexander Rose uh, about his book, The Lion and the Fox, uh, about spies during the American Civil War. I'm very excited about that. Uh, and I'm already looking ahead to early 2023, uh, where I'm going to be having a guest on. We're going to be talking about a women's murder ring in Europe, uh, which will be really interesting. So uh, until next time, uh, I hope you have a great holiday season. Bye now. <laughs>